Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community, and we're dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And we're dedicated to being in right relationship with one another, with ourselves, and with our planet. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so, in the spirit of that heritage, one of the ways that we greet the divine on Sunday mornings is to greet one another. If you have comments in the platform on which you are watching, please do greet one another and let us know where you're watching from. Join me in saying our chalice lighting. This is the flame we hold in our hearts as we strive for justice for everyone. This is the light we shine upon systems of oppression until they are no more. This is the warmth that we share with one another as our struggle becomes our salvation. From Reverend Kathleen Mateague, a white Unitarian Universalist minister, poet, author, and social justice advocate. May the light around us guide our footsteps and hold us fast to the best and most righteous that we seek. May the darkness around us nurture our dreams and give us rest so that we may give ourselves to the work of our world. Let us seek to remember the wholeness of our lives, the weaving of light and shadow in this great and astounding dance in which we move. This congregation wrote a mission statement for itself to guide us as we make decisions to move into the future together. We say it every Sunday, and when we're here in this room, we can read it off the wall in our sanctuary where we wrote it because we like it so much. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist, philosopher, historian, short story writer, and political prisoner. One of the most famous Soviet dissidents, he was an unabashed critic of communism and worked to expose the Gulag concentration camp system. This is from his novel, The Gulag Archipelago, an influential work that served as a kind of head-on challenge to the Soviet state. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, One small bridgehead of good is retained. Now is the time in our worship when we join together in prayer and meditation where we can speak or listen to God as we understand God or listen to our inner wisdom or just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. Please join me in prayer. Divine One of many names. We are so often 
flattened by the amount of trouble in the world, by the amount of pain. Sometimes we know what to do, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we do what we know to do, and it still doesn't help, but sometimes it does. Please help our hearts stay encouraged. Please help us look for other people to join in our effort to bring the beloved community into being. May we understand our place in things, our part in the good, and our part in the destructive. We ask for clarity no matter how painful it might be. May it be so. And I invite you now to light candles of joy or sorrow, hope or remembrance. You are welcome to let us know in the comments what you are lighting your candle for. Let's get oriented in time here as we begin this story. We're in the early 1800s. Napoleon is triumphant. Beethoven is writing music. The telegraph is being used for long-distance communications. 1836, Davy Crockett comes to Texas in time for the Alamo. Darwin is on the Beagle. Sam Houston is elected as the first president of the Republic of Texas. 1837, the panic of 1837, banks fail in New York, unemployment soars, and there are riots in Boston between English Americans and Irish Americans. Everyone is unsettled. Trouble in the air. This is the story of the Trail of Tears, as it came to be called. A story of courage and timidity, neutrality, 
betrayal, revenge, greed, and power. Part of the story is about lawmakers creating legislation that set the Cherokee Nation up for being cheated and defeated. In the early 1800s, the Cherokee were living in a swath of land that went from North Georgia around Dahlonega, Clayton, up through Tennessee, Western South Carolina, and Western North Carolina with hunting lands up into Kentucky, about 100,000 square miles. The English settlers were encroaching, and the Cherokees were divided about how to handle that encroachment, how to survive the white settlers. Some wanted to continue to live in a more traditional way, to hold land communally in a more traditional way, to be matrilineal, to have the more traditional form of government, and they called themselves the, the old settlers. And this group signed a treaty with the U.S. government, giving up title to the lands they held in the southeast in exchange for lands that they themselves chose in Arkansas and Oklahoma. Most of the rest of the Cherokees decided to stay in the east in order to uh, survive and hope for peaceful interactions with the settlers. Some of them decided to try to survive by being as European as possible, dressing in European clothes. Their homes looked like the white settlers' homes. They were, some of them were country folk, and some of them were very sophisticated and educated, progressive. Some were in business. Some were in farming, lawyers, doctors, ministers, most converted to Christianity. Their principal chief, John Ross, was part Cherokee and part Scottish. He had graduated from Harvard, and he drew up a constitution for the tribe and governance based on the U.S. Uh, governance, which was then based on the Iroquois Great Law of Peace. Many families were of mixed blood because uh, people like my ancestors and many of your ancestors who came over from Europe in the 1600s had just intermarried with the Cherokee who were there and the Lumbee and the Creek. Um, there wasn't a real sense of whiteness back then that was not really a definition for people. Uh, the English hated the Irish and saw them as not quite up to par. They hated the Scots-Irish, not quite up to par. Uh, then later everybody hated the Italians, but that was later. So in the Appalachian region, there was a lot of intermarriage, a lot of blonde Cherokee kids. Many Cherokees were wealthy and owned great big plantations in Georgia and held African slaves. We don't often hear that the Cherokee Nation and other native tribes had enslaved Africans. 
Native tribes had enslaved one another for generations in varying different ways. It didn't always mean the same thing. But apparently the owning of enslaved Africans was pretty comfortable for some of them. And the labor of these enslaved women and men uh, added greatly to the wealth of the Cherokees who, who owned them. At this same time, a Cherokee man named George Gist, who was also called Sequoia, invented a language, a, a way to write the language, the Cherokee language, and, um, it, and in a way that it was fairly simple to print. And so between 1809 and 1820, most Cherokees learned to read and write, and their newspaper, the Phoenix, was established. From the beginning of the 1800s, there had been talk of removal of the Cherokees from the land. The communal way in which the tribe held the land didn't make any sense to the settlers. The way that they had matrilineal uh, family Tracing didn't make any sense to the settlers. But what really made it bad was the discovery of gold in the hills of North Georgia. And white settlers began to pour into the Cherokee lands, just come on in and build their houses and start panning for gold. And so the Cherokees would be Upset that their land was being trampled and that their streams were being dug up, but um, the European settlers, the those with European heritage, would be like, "Well, who do I buy this land from? Who do I get permission from?" And and that was not a question that made sense in the context of the Cherokee Nation. Whose land is this? It's like it's our land. And they saw that the land wasn't owned by anybody. And so, why not just take it? <sighs> Pressure for removal increased as more settlers moved in on the Cherokee. In 1830, there was the passage of the Indian Removal Act by the U.S. Congress. And this act gave the president the authority to exchange land where Indians were living in settled states for unsettled land west of the Mississippi. So the president could just say, we're taking this land that you're on right now, but we'll exchange you some beautiful land out there in Oklahoma. Now, this did not seem fair to almost everybody. Um, President Jackson, Andrew Jackson, uh, did not care. And the U.S. Congress were peopled with people like they are peopled with now. Some wonderful, some terrible, and some kind of in between as we are most of us. 
there were missionaries living among the Cherokee who the state of Georgia expected them to just be quiet or neutral or even pro-removal because they were white people and they were supposed to be on the side of the white people. And some of the missionaries agreed to this, but not Samuel Worcester. He was a Methodist minister and he protested and said, the establishment of the state of Georgia over the Cherokee people against their will would be an immense and irreparable injury. The editor of the Phoenix took up this anti-removal cause and the case went to court to decide was the Cherokee nation a sovereign nation or was it a ward of Georgia? As it was moving through the courts, the, the uh, Georgia Supreme Court said they were not even going to hear it um, because... They were a ward of Georgia, the Cherokees, and so they couldn't sue Georgia. Then Georgia passed laws that said no missionaries can live amongst the Cherokee without getting a permit. And we're just not giving any permits. Samuel Worcester was arrested and thrown in prison. He um, sued the state of Georgia as his own individual self. And he got two senators on his side, Daniel Webster, who was a Unitarian, and Henry Clay. Now, this case went to the Supreme Court of the United States, and they said, you cannot... Um, you have no sovereignty over the Cherokee Nation, Georgia... They are a sovereign nation, and you're not giving permits or requiring permits for missionaries to live amongst the Cherokee is unconstitutional. And by the way, let Samuel Worcester out of jail. And that decision laid the groundwork for the sense of tribal sovereignty that the U.S. law has now for what it's been worth. So the Supreme Court voted on the side of the Cherokees and President Andrew Jackson said, I don't care, let them try to enforce it. I'm not going to. Things got worse and worse. And the debate heated up within the Cherokee tribe about whether they should just voluntarily remove themselves to Indian territory or maybe they should hold out to see if there would be a reprieve. And here comes a skunky bit, one of the skunky bits. In 1835, a small group of Cherokees decided that they would meet with U.S. officials and they signed a treaty called the Treaty of New Echota in 1835 agreeing to exchange their land for tools, money, equipment, and livestock and other valuables in Indian country. Now, Chief Ross and his people objected strenuously and said they don't have any standing to sign a treaty with you. And the government said, too late, it's already signed and ratified. And the Cherokee Nation had passed a law that said no one could give away any more Cherokee land upon pain of death which these people had just done, the New Echota people. 
And so the new Echota tree signers um, left for Arkansas and Oklahoma pretty quickly because everybody else was mad at them. The rest of the Cherokees who were left continued to fight uh, removal in the papers and in the courts, and they sent delegates to Washington to speak with senators and to speak with President Jackson. By 1838 in May, uh, now President uh, Martin Van Buren, who had been Jackson's vice president, uh, ordered soldiers to forcibly remove the Cherokee. They came to every village and town and rousted all the Cherokee, the rich ones, the poor ones, the country ones, the sophisticated ones, mothers with little children. At the point of bayonets, they rousted them all in the clothes they had on their back. They were not allowed to pack. And they put them in internment camps. This is something the U.S. government does from time to time. They put them in camps, 16,000 Cherokee and 1,500 enslaved Africans penned up all that summer, and many died of dysentery. Soldiers took 4,000 out of the 16,000 and took them down the rivers, which had been drought-stricken, so the rivers weren't working very well. And so the African, the enslaved African folks had to get out of the boat and start moving rocks in order to uh, let the steamships have room to, to go on. And so many people deserted and uh, others died along that way of traveling so the government signed a contract with Chief Ross that he could figure out how to get the rest of the people to Oklahoma and so they gave him money and with government money he hired wagons and organized the people into cohorts and each cohort had a doctor uh, some grave diggers and a seasoned leader And the weather soon that fall grew freakishly cold. People had what they had had on their bodies in May. The old died. The very young died. There wasn't enough food. And people along the path, people who lived along the path that they were walking, would come out to the trail and try to give blankets and try to give food. It was never enough. People would weep. And they wouldn't let them stop to bury the dead, so they had to carry their dead until nightfall and bury them then. John Ross and his wife, Quaddy, had a little bit of an easier trip on a steamship, but still she, she developed a pneumonia, and now she's buried in Little Rock, Arkansas. One of our own forebears, Ralph Waldo Emerson, stood up and wrote the president a letter saying this. We only state the fact that a crime is projected that confounds our understandings by its magnitude. A crime that really deprives us as well as the Cherokees of a country. For how could we call the conspiracy that should crush these poor Indians our government? 
or the land that was cursed by their parting and dying imprecations, our country anymore. You, sir, will bring down that renowned chair in which you sit into infamy if your seal is set to this instrument of perfidy. And the name of this nation, hitherto the sweet omen of religion and liberty, will stink to the world. Go, Waldo. I'm proud of him for doing that. Didn't do any good, but I'm proud of him anyway. When the Cherokee got to the Indian Territory, there were the old settlers already there. And living in a traditional way. And then there were the people who had signed the treaty at New Echota there. Never, needless to say, there were tensions. And since the penalty for having signed away the Cherokee land that the New Echota people did was death, most of them died by assassination. About a thousand Cherokees stayed in the southeast. They melted into the forests, into the fields. They... Um, some of them were on the land of a, of a white farmer who had been adopted into the Cherokee tribe. And so if you, had, if you were on private land, you didn't have to leave. And so um, many, many of them were on this farmer's land. And many of them just passed for white and so could avoid being removed. They lived in the woods on squirrels and acorns, the way Appalachian people did for centuries. I mean, squirrels, the delicacy up there, people still eat it. It's a Cherokee thing to do. The people who are descended from those who stayed are now called the Eastern Band of the Cherokees, and the ones who went to Oklahoma, uh, mostly around Tahlequah, are called the Western Band. The Western Band adopted the enslaved Africans who made it to the end with them. Only now, uh, there are still tensions as some forces within the Cherokee Nation seek to get rid of the black Cherokees because racism. The Cherokees were not the only tribe who had to walk the Trail of Tears. The Choctaw, the Muscogee, the Seminole were also stripped of their land and sent out to Indian Territory. And then when the European settlers wanted that land, they were sent farther. Greed always pushes for more. The heavy-footed always want more power. And so when I tell you stories from our history, one thing I want you to understand is that things are complicated in the past as they are complicated in the present. But present, but injustice has a similar shape wherever it moves. The laws are ignored. Differences are demonized. People are othered and lessened. Horrors are minimized and dismissed. They always say, oh, it's not that bad. Oh, you're making it up. That's, it couldn't have been that bad. And then the oppressed turn on one another in fighting, destroying one another from within because that's the way that oppression works. And the people who do the very worst things are just following orders 
And racism is used as an instrument of greed, and racism is used as an instrument of power. And the heavy-footed will always feel they have the right to stay on top and to take what they want. I think the Europeans who moved in on the land because of the gold were telling themselves, well, they weren't using the land anyway, not like I would use it to dig for gold and to farm in my way instead of in your way. They didn't understand land ownership. So we need to state take the top because we know how to do things the European way. And I feel like they felt justified in this behavior. If they're anything like the people that I see right now, say on the 6th of January, coming into their house to uh, claim their rights in a way that horrifies the rest of us and makes us feel like democracy is being destroyed and that our country cannot be our country anymore if it's if it's going to do things like this and we must take our country back and we sound just like them we must take our country back we all say so our job as spiritual people will be not to be part of the heavy-footed and to use whatever privileges we have in service of our allies who are being oppressed our job is to confront greed and power hunger in our culture and in ourselves and now we will take and gratefully receive our regular morning offering if you are watching this from another place, we would love it if you would donate to this congregation. If you are a member or a friend of this congregation, we thank you for your generous pledges and we thank you for paying on those pledges. If you belong to a smaller church that has been floundering during this time, we ask that you donate to them so that they can be strong on the other side of this plague, which we can almost see the end of. Our hearts are longing for that time, that moment. I invite you to join me now as we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. The lone wild bird in lofty flight Is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight And I am thine, I rest in thee Great Spirit, come and rest in me Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.